The Sean S. Show is a podcast about the interesting and ever-changing world of American politics. And this show's number one goal is to get more people politically engaged and educated on political matters. I'm very happy to see the work that we've done here on this show to get it to where it is this season. And I'm so glad and excited for all the great things ahead. But in order for us to achieve this goal, we need more people to start listening to the Ishanash show. So if you could do this podcast a favor and share this episode and all your other favorite episodes with your friends or family, or share our social medias and go follow them yourselves, then this show would be grateful. Of course, we couldn't have gotten this far without your support. So thank you. And the great episode that we have planned for you starts right now. Welcome back. Crisis in Ukraine. The country of Ukraine is under siege as we speak amid Russia's invasion of the country. World leaders are condemning Russia's acts as countries and people all around the world are rallying behind the Ukrainian people in a multitude of ways and Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky vows to fight for his country as long as he can. Putin chose this war and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Russian President Vladimir Putin refuses to back down and pledges to remove, quote, neo-Nazis and extremists from the Ukrainian government. We'll cover the latest on the invasion, talk about the global impact, the fight ahead for Putin, the West, and the Ukrainian people. Today, March 19th, 2022. From Anchor by Spotify, this is the Ishana Show, a podcast about the interesting and ever-changing world of American politics, all from the perspective of a 15-year-old. With me, your host, Ishan. Welcome back to the Ishan S. Show. Thank you so much for joining me here today after my longer-than-expected hiatus. Um... You know, the last time we talked was January 7th. We had just covered the first anniversary of the January 6th riots. So that was what, like two months, two and a half months ago? You know, a lot has been happening here at home and around the world. We're talking about a lot of news everywhere. You know, we have new political office holders getting sworn in in New York City, Virginia and Florida and so many other places. And they've made their own kinds of headlines. We have COVID that kind of shot up and then died out and then kind of is, might, may, might be making a comeback again. Then we had the mask debate. Masks became this big deal again and then not again. And then we started lifting the mask mandates and then masks became news again. Um, The economy shot up and then shot down. Gas prices are crazy at the moment. Um, I'm sure most of you are aware of that. Uh, we all see those gas prices. I'm where I'm from. We see four ninety right now. That's the highest that I've seen. But I'm sure it's higher in other parts of the country. But then, looking at the political side of things, we had CPAC, we had new policies, infrastructure. But I think probably one of the biggest pieces of news is that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement from the Supreme Court. 
Now, this gave President Biden his first pick to the top court. So that's like an automatic legacy maker right there. So it's a big deal in the political world. Um, He nominated uh, federal judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to fill the spot. She'd be the first black woman to be um, selected to the Supreme Court. But then other than that, looking at some party politics, you know, Mike Pence and Donald Trump, that's interesting stuff. Donald Trump, speaking of him, is he going to run in 2024? That is literally the top of at the top of everyone's question list right now when 2024 comes to mind. President Biden gave his first State of the Union address a few weeks ago, where he talked about a multitude of things, including the economy, COVID, and all that good stuff. A lot has been con- happening in this country since the last time we met. <laughs> but... I think the biggest story that is happening right now is actually happening outside of our borders, and that's the crisis in Ukraine. As most of you know, Russia invaded Ukraine over three weeks ago in an attempt to do something. Um, This has mainly been speared by Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and this truly unfounded invasion has been met with widespread reaction here in the United States, as well as countries around the world. It's a big deal. Like, 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 let's take a look at this. Here we have is the biggest military conflict on European soil since World War II. That was over 75 years ago. Right now, two nuclear powers, the United States and Russia, have never been this closely knit in a major war, including, and that includes all of the years of the Cold War. And even then, there were some seriously close moments. Look, I don't mean to sound all gloom and doom on you because it's true that this is pretty dark, though. The fact of the matter is that this is probably the biggest conflict of the 21st century thus far. Many of us, based on my listenership, haven't experienced anything like this before. We've not seen a wide-scale war hit Europe with a full invasion since the days of Adolf Hitler and the Axis powers. Now, I realize that I'm covering this today, and I think it's important to set some things clear. So before I go any further in my report on this matter, I want to set some things clear. I believe in unbiased and objective journalism, and that's the goal of this show. But sometimes that's just not an option that, you know, people like myself who are covering these types of stories have. In my view, I should be honest, this war, if you haven't been able to tell by my voice yet, is not fair, it's not right, and it needs to stop. I'm not going to go too far with my views in terms of explaining them, but I'll say that I can't ignore the clear and present complexities of covering something like this. This is simply put an unfounded invasion. You can't twist that a whole lot. Like, there's not much that you can do to twist this in favor of the country invading right now. I believe that if I want to give my best analysis on this matter, then it needs to be done with all opinions and views shared. I think I need to be transparent about that. So going in to this episode and this report, I want to make clear my views on this war. And that's the most fair thing for you, my listeners. Now now that that's out of the way, let's take a step back and understand how exactly we got here. Now, when I say take a step back, I mean 30 years back. 
<laughs> at, at this point, you know, 30 years ago, the Soviet Union ceased to exist and many of us were talking only about the recent former Soviet Union, a country of 15 nations that were politically consumed by the grasp of Moscow and Russia. It promoted communism. It was run by mostly authoritarian types of people. And in general, we've come to conclude that it wasn't very successful when we think about it. But it also brought about this sort of nationalism, especially towards the end, for certain citizens in this bloc, if you will. After the Soviet Union broke up, a lot of these people were very disheartened and they felt threatened. They saw the collapse of the Soviet Union as a mistake and a step in the wrong direction for Russia. One of these people was Vladimir Putin, who was a simple KGB agent at the time. Putin and others would eventually rise in the ranks and, you know, they would reach these high offices. President Putin, that's what people call him now because he rose up in the ranks from the KGB and now he's president. So has so have his allies. And they have made these views of theirs very, very public. Some of these views included things such as these very fiery speeches and very, you know, big claims and bold claims about this for about the Soviet Union. But there were also some physical reactions as in militaristic um, reactions to this. And some of that included the invasion of Chechnya, Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008 and the invasion of Crimea in 2014. This is probably the most recent example um, and each time, Vladimir Putin has said that it was in an effort to protect ethnic Russians and residents in these countries. He would say that he would say that he would go in, he would take the country and virtually turn it into his puppet. And you can take him at his word for the things that he's suggesting. But many people have come to conclude that Putin really has this desire to restore the Soviet Union. And he's been going into these countries, you know, like Chechnya and going into Georgia and Ukraine and Crimea to help restore the Soviet Union. And as we've progressed through the 21st century, Putin has been trying to make a more desperate effort to expand Russia's influence in Eastern Europe, especially after the West started expanding into what was what he thought was his turf. Now, when I say the West, I mean NATO. NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, I'm sure it's something you've probably heard of, is essentially a mutual defense agreement involving the United States, Canada, and several Western European countries. This organization was created in 1949 in response to the growing homogeny of the then USSR. But it really thrived in the 70s and the 80s, and it made another comeback and jump in the 2000s after the USSR collapsed. This growth really frightened the USSR and after them, Russia. NATO, we should establish, is purely a defense agreement. They, these countries that are involved in this, pro, in this agreement work together to promote common defense, you know, help trading weapons and conducting these exercises within their borders and all that sort of thing. These countries don't have any intentions of attacking any country. 
In fact, the most in fact the most notable thing about NATO is that they only have one major point to it, and that it is so defensive that the fa- and that is Article Five of the NATO Charter, which is that an attack on one is an attack on all, which means that if a member country is attacked, then all countries are obligated to help respond f- with that country. So. Even in the roots of NATO, it's more about defending the territory than attacking. Vladimir Putin has been under this misconception for so long that NATO was out to attack him, even though NATO had no intentions ever of doing such. But anyway, as NATO progressed through Europe, the conversation slowly started to drop onto Ukraine. It started to become about Ukraine. Ukraine, for some facts, is the second largest country in Europe. It has a population of over 40 million people. It has access to numerous natural resources, and it has great farmland. Russia, specifically Vladimir Putin, when I say that, had a particular interest in Ukraine. So right now, at this point, when Russia or Ukraine became, you know, the the topic of conversation whenever we thought of NATO, um, that, that was about the early 2010s, so about 10 years ago. Now, at this point, Putin has gotten a lot more hostile and aggressive with the West, um, and he has this sort of uncompromising type of attitude. You know, I'm not going to work with you unless you do exactly what I want, the way I want it, and how I want it, and when I want it, that type of attitude. But he also made clear that he wanted the Soviet Union to make a return. He wanted to restore the Soviet Union. And this was just only revealed by more speeches, by more policies, by more, um, by more statements on the global state stage that this was Putin's interest. And Ukraine was at the top of his to-do list in order to achieve that agenda. So as NATO was giving brochures and business cards to the Ukrainian government, Putin felt extremely threatened and attacked somehow. He needed Ukraine. This became an even more prevalent issue after his political ally, the president of Ukraine at the time, was ousted from government after he was not approved by his people. So Putin went into Ukraine, but he specifically focused on the region of Crimea. In the Crimean Peninsula, there's a large ethnic Russian population, and they very much supported the old president. So when the president was ousted, Putin mobilized forces and launched an invasion of Crimea and took it. Not many countries have actually recognized Russia's control over the territory, but Russian flags are on the buildings in, in, in Crimea. There are Russian flags coming out of those government buildings. The Russian military is there. They have, they have forces there. And I think... This was a sort of vindicating sign for Vladimir Putin of his ability to sort of run this region of the world. I think after Crimea kind of worked out for him, it was a sign that maybe he could do more. Okay, so that was a look at the many things that led up to this point that now when we come back, we'll talk about the actual invasion, what has happened, and the response from around the world. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this short, short break. All right, we're back. So before the break, we were talking about some Russian history and began to understand Vladimir Putin. 
Now let's talk about the actual series of events that have unfolded in the past couple of weeks with Ukraine. So starting in 2021, Russia began a major troop buildup in Eastern Europe along its border with Ukraine and with the nation of Belarus, whose president, Alexander Lukashenko, is a very close ally of Vladimir Putin's. But anyway, in 2021, early 2021, the Russian military started amassing these troops slowly but routinely right at the border. Each time they got asked about this, they would say that they were not they were only conducting military exercises and that it was none of the West's business. Now, we didn't sound off the alarms for a while as they continued to build up their forces. President Biden even met with President Putin in Geneva in that time. So there was, you know, at least some sort of discussion going on. It didn't seem as if it were a very big deal. But through that time, U.S. intelligence was still monitoring Russia's activity at the border. We'd, every time we'd ask them, uh, ask the Russians for exactly what they were doing, they wouldn't do much. And for the most part, there weren't any major breakthroughs during this, you know, relative you know, calm time with this matter. That was until U.S. intelligence then released intel that suggested that Russia was looking to use its forces to invade Ukraine. Like this is not a drill, it's happening. Many Kremlin officials, including Vladimir Putin, denied any intentions or plans of invading Ukraine. They said it was not happening. But our intelligence services released satellite photos of of Russian military personnel sitting on the border with equipment, field hospitals, and of course, people, presumably Russians. And it wasn't just that one time in December. The you you know intelligence agencies from here in the United States and all around around the world with our allies would routinely re- release all this intelligence, all these satellite pictures, and other reasons for us to believe that this invasion was likely to occur. In the lead-up with all this happening, the Kremlin was denying any plans of invasion. But during all of that, they also accused the Ukrainian government of, quote, Russophobia. And they also accused them of the suppression of Russian speakers in Ukraine. Putin went as far as suggesting that this Russophobia was the first step of a genocide. So they were building up troops on the border. They were actively denying any plans of invading Ukraine. Yet they were also criticizing the government of Ukraine, and they were accusing them of committing a genocide. Anyway, as the date of February 16th rolled around, many people began to feel as if Russia was going to launch that invasion. In fact, many intelligence agencies were suggesting that the 16th was going to be that day. But in response, President Zelensky of Ukraine ordered a national day of unity, presumably to bolster spirits and morale. The invasion didn't happen that day on February 16th, but we knew it was coming. It it just it didn't seem like it didn't seem very likely of it not happening. There were about, I think, at that time, 190,000 troops on the border with Ukraine in Russia and also in Belarus at this point. So it it just became, it was starting to become more and more apparent that there was something in the works. Then on February 21st, Putin gave a speech, a televised address to his constituents, 
Long story short, it was essentially a speech in which he bashed Ukraine, questioned its sovereignty, rewrote history, and painted the fall of the Soviet Union as this great tragedy. That sort of thinking, you know, and, and his, was his, that was the type of thinking in his speech. And then he took escalation and multiplied that by 10 and then put that on the table by recognizing the independence of two Ukrainian provinces, the Dantesk and the Luhansk regions, as two independent countries. These territories have large Russian populations, and the Kremlin accused the Ukrainian government of mistreating these people here. Then after that, he sent Russian forces into you know, this Donbass region for a so-called peacekeeping mission within the Donbass region, which encompasses the Luhansk and Dantesk, um, uh, Dantesk territories. People in this region, Russian embassy staff, and Russian citizens in Ukraine all began evacuating from this country right after the recognition of the supposed independence of these territories. Is that not a sign enough? Then on February 24th, not even a full three days later, Putin came back onto the television screens of millions of Russians in a pre-recorded address in which he officially started this war by commencing a, quote, special military operation in Ukraine. In other words, a declaration of war. In his speech, he, he claimed, despite everything that was happening, that Russia respected Ukrainians' rights to self-determination. He Made He said that Russia did not have any plans to occupy Ukraine, and he continued his claims of a mass genocide occurring in the Donbass region. That is the type of rhetoric that you would hear in this sort of thing, sure. Then he started to claim that his military was seeking the, quote, demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. This is objectively outlandish on numerous levels. He literally claimed that the Ukrainian government was run by Nazis and extremists that were hurting ethnic Russians in the Ukrainian territory. Let's make this clear. The fact that President Zelensky is a Jewish man with, a, with family who died in the Holocaust and whose grandfather fought against the Nazis is proof enough that these claims about the government from Vladimir Putin are unfounded and unreasonable. So that's the war. That is what has literally, that was the tension, that was where the tensions boiled. But what has our response been? Well, for the most part, pretty united. As tensions were building up, President Biden and other Western leaders promised harsh consequences if Russia entered Ukraine. Here's President Biden outlining some of those sanctions the day after the invasion began. This is a premeditated attack. Vladimir Putin has been planning this for months. Flagrant violation of international law. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions. This is going to impose severe cost on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. We have purposefully designed these sanctions to maximize the long-term impact on Russia and ultimately by choosing a war without a cause. Putin's aggression against Ukraine will end up costing Russia dearly economically and strategically. We will make sure of that. 
If Putin sought the disorganization of NATO to be his green light, then I would say that he was wrong. NATO and the West in general has been more united in its response than ever before. It has given NATO a new meaning. It's now an organization that is there to combat actual Russian aggression as they literally invade right on NATO's doorstep. We here in the United States and our allies have taken major economic actions against China. Specifically, when I say that, I mean sanctions. Now, what that means is essentially we've suspended their ability to access finances in our countries with our currency. Now, on surface level, you may think that a sanction doesn't sound like it's a big response. But in reality, these sanctions that we have imposed are significant, not to mention the fact that when the United States sanctions some countries or somebody, it's a big deal because the U.S. dollar is a very important factor in the global economy. We have sanctioned Russian businesses, financial institutions, oligarchs, their central bank, ministers, other officials, and even Vladimir Putin himself. This has completely rocked the Russian economy, and we've really cut them from the global economy. For some context, the Russian ruble, which is their currency, has dropped by more than 30% in value just since the sanctions were imposed. That's a massive amount. Then couple that with inflation, and you can start to see just how catastrophic this sounds. People in Russia are lining up for hours on end just to withdraw their money from ATMs in the worry that the banking system of Russia might fail. Western companies are cutting Russia off one by one. Facebook has left or has been banned. One of the two depends on who you ask. MasterCard and Visa have halted their um, their credit card operations in Russia. So it's hard to really do any major you know transactions if you don't even have the right cards to be able to do that. And even Burger King is trying to close all their locations in Russia. Average everyday Russians are paying the price for the impulses and actions of their president. Talk about the literal price of war. Now, you might be asking why we're not do, going, you know, going right in with our own troops. If we care so much, why not just send some people in with guns to fight? The short answer is because that's the safest option. But the long answer is that we cannot. We, meaning NATO, cannot send in any forces into Ukraine to fight with Russian soldiers. If we did, then we would technically be at war with Russia. That's not pretty. We would all be at war because of Article 5. An attack on one is an attack on all. So if Russia does so much as even try to attack NATO forces, then 30 countries, including the United States and Ukraine, will be at war with Russia. That's a nightmare that policymakers here in, in Washington, D.C., in Brussels, in Berlin, in Paris, in Beijing, in Tokyo, in Delhi, and even Moscow, too, don't want to see. Because when it comes down to it, that would essentially become a war between the United States and Russia. Two nuclear states, one Vladimir Putin, and seven billion people on the planet. 
The broad consensus is that this should not be happening. We have, however, supplied the Ukrainian military with guns and ammunition and weapons, tanks, and even jets. Just recently, the government passed an $800 million spending plan to help support Ukraine financially, militarily, and even politically. But it's not just governments. Average people are doing this sort of thing, too. People in small towns and big towns alike are coming together to help Ukrainians by doing small things like starting toy drives for kids, collecting food for people, blankets, clothing. People are buying Airbnb stays in Ukraine so that people there can get some sort of money. Millions of dollars have been raised in fundraising efforts to support NGOs and other organizations. With that, let's also take a look at the most important group in this topic, which is obviously the people of Ukraine. Ukraine is suffering right now. The Russian military, first off, went into their country illegally and started an attempt to invade their home. Schools and work have been canceled all across the country. People started hoarding groceries of all of a sudden. There was just so much uncertainty and stress that was just dumped on a country in just a matter of, in a matter of, you know, of days. A country of 40 million plus people. The Russian military has launched indiscriminate attacks against innocent civilians. And while they have claimed that they, are not, they have no intention of hurting innocent civilians, they keep doing it. Innocent civilians are getting killed in this war. Children are getting killed in this war. Many leaders have called these by what they are, war crimes by the Russian government. President Biden just a few days ago called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. People are fleeing their country. This war has created over 3.2 million refugees, many of them going into Poland and other neighboring countries. This makes this easily one of the largest refugee crises in modern world history. But even with all these reasons to look down, the people of Ukraine, I think, have really emerged as such a resilient and strong group of people. They have had to witness so much, but the work that so many people are doing is jaw-droppingly inspiring. People stayed back. Many people learned how to fire a weapon for the first time, found other ways and, you know, to, to help in order to support their country in whatever the way they can and stop this invasion. Militarily, Ukraine has been so successful. While most thought that Ukraine would fall in just a matter of days, they have held out strong and have fought fiercely against Russian forces. The Russian military hasn't been able to take major cities like Kharkiv, Odessa, and the capital of Kiev, despite so much effort and even despite the fact that Russia has forces in, in amounts far greater than what Ukraine had at the start of this. So much of the success can, I feel, be attributed to the strong leadership of Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. President Zelensky, you need to understand, is not someone who you'd think would be a president. Just four years ago, he was a comedian playing the role of president of Ukraine on television. Now, four years later, 
he is fighting the most important thing of his life and the lives of all his constituents, all the people he represents and works for. His leadership and determination to save his country is just so inspiring in itself. You know, when the United States offered to evacuate Zelensky from Kyiv, he said, quote, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Zelensky's refusal to give up is giving hope to the Ukrainian people. They have a leader. Zelensky has so many threats to his life, yet he leaves his bunker, visits injured soldiers, addresses his people daily, and also conducts diplomacy with other countries. Just days ago, he addressed the U.S. Congress from Kiev, and he addressed the German Bundestag. He addressed the, U- the Canadian and U.K. parliaments. He's the mascot of U- Ukrainian resilience and strength. And he represents his people, really, the spirit of these people. Okay, that is a lot. And I realize that this episode is running a little past what is usual. But before I go, I want you to educate yourself on this issue a little more. I know that I have a bit of a skewed view on this topic. And I know I don't I know and I know that I don't have nearly enough time here on this episode to cover every detail of this war. So, you know, use other resources to educate yourself on this matter. Learn about what's going on on the ground right now. Listen to stories of Ukrainian people who are in Ukraine or are refugees and cannot go back to their homes. And if you can, Please try to take some time to help Ukrainians in some way. Maybe find a toy drive for kids like I mentioned earlier. Donate a couple of bucks to organizations that are helping out. Donate food or clothing for refugees in, from Ukraine that are you know, trying to make sense of this themselves as they can't go back to their homes. This is a dark and difficult time for Ukrainians, and for so many of us around the world. But as long as we have hope and determination, I'm sure that this conflict can and will come to an end by peaceful means. And so that does it for us here at the Ishana Show today. If you liked my commentary, then go ahead and follow at Ishan underscore show on Twitter and at the Ishan as show on Instagram for breaking news posts and updates about the show. If you want to learn more about political stories, then check out my political news blog on the Ishanashow.com. Do us a favor and share this episode and all the others with your friends and family. It's the best way for this show to grow and get more people listening to it. Thanks again for all your support, and I'll see you guys soon. Bye.